Happy Wednesday, bingers. I need to get real with all of you for just a minute. I know that we have a lot of fun on this show, but I want to take just a moment to remind everyone that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Domestic violence is a serious problem, not only in the United States, but also around the world. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States alone. And 72% of all murder-suicides involve an intimate partner, and a staggering 94% of the victims of these murder-suicides are female. Here at NBI Studios, we want to do our part to help bring awareness to the problem. So all of the cases that we're going to be discussing this month will be highlighting a case where domestic violence led to murder. It's my hope that by sharing these stories, it may cause someone to step in and help before it's too late. My guests today host and produce the Australian podcast Evidence Locker. They've come on to discuss an insanely perplexing case where years of domestic abuse may have resulted in a tragic death. Please welcome Noel Vinson and Sonia Lowe. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. In our pre-show conversation, I've discovered that uh, both of our guests today, Noel and uh, and Sonia, are are in tomorrow. Uh, you guys are there. It's a whole different day where you guys are at in Australia. Time traveling. Yeah. <laughs> and, and interesting. So I've had, I don't know what kind of kick Erica's on lately, but a lot of our guests lately have been from uh, Australia, doing Australian podcast. And everyone I've spoken to has been outside of the lockdown area, except you guys. You said you guys have been locked down for quite a while in our own evidence locker if you will right <laughs> <laughs> and we just live in this locker and, and think about crime that's that's all you guys do how has it affected you because we were talking about because and also for you listeners if the sound quality is not the same as it normally is sonia and noel are are record or in their houses right now they're not able to get to their studio so we they they aren't able to have be on microphone and do local recording that we normally do uh, but how long have you guys been in this lockdown? Because it, cause it's like, like we think of lockdown like we've had here in the States. And it's just like, you know, you got to wear a mask if you go places. And then that's our that's our lockdown. But you you guys are shut down, right? Yes. Uh, Pretty much, well, yeah. So be, Noel's right? been in longer. <laughs> Noel has been in a bit longer because he lives in the city. And I live about an hour outside of the city. Mm-hmm. So we only recently joined. So I, I can't complain as badly as Noel. You, you're allowed to complain, Noel. <laughs> oh, and I'll find a reason to, even if I didn't. No, um, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, obviously pros and cons of, of what lockdown is. But at the end of the day, you know, morale's up, morale's down, just uh, mm-hmm. got to keep chugging. So, um, but yeah, it's been a while and it was a little bit of a challenge to just learn how to do, to record the episodes here, um, to have Sonya's direction, um, to make sure I don't fudge any pronunciations, you know, things like that. So. Right. Um, initially it was a bit of a challenge, but I, we found a way to, to get us through. It's just, I can't wait till we can actually, you know, have a coffee again together. 
Yeah, so, and just uh, we we have a nice energy if we work together. So it, it feels like you're self-generating a lot. It's just it's it's better to be in our team of two. Yeah, it's it's tough. So I had um so normally my Mike is my Sonia is our is our producer and and is and was always for years has always been in the room with me when I record just like you know when like he would mm. he would catch I mean it was it was always kind of silly cuz he's sitting next to me on headphones but then he's got the script and everything and then he'd be like no nope, that's you got to redo that you said this instead of this <laughs> and I'm finding I make so many more mistakes cuz he doesn't you know, we we were when we were locked down for a while he started working remotely and that he lives almost an almost an hour from me and so after oh. you know we managed to navigate that for like six months and then it was opened back up and it was like he's like you know it sure would be nice if i didn't come to the office every day since we figured out we can do this and now he's only here one day a week yeah. <laughs> it's like man you know what get out of my head i'm, I'm good <laughs> right right i do so many reading so in my in my uh in my recordings that i send to him to edit i'm i'm always like uh Sorry, Mike, I'm going to retake that because I don't remember if I said that right or not. So I'm just re- redoing stuff over and over and over again. Uh, on the, uh, the self-doubt. Right. Yeah, poor Noel had a, had a page of names that he needed to re-record the other day, uh, but in the context of a, <laughs> of a sentence. You know, as Americans, and I'm not saying that anything is right or wrong, it's just there's certain vowels that we, I don't think we'll ever get on our best day. <laughs> <laughs> now it, it, it's funny you say that because now I knew this was an Australian podcast, and then I listened to it, and to me, Noel, you don't seem to have that what is an accent to us. Like, you, very, is it because of the part of the of the country that you're in, or no? I'm actually I'm actually from um, L.A. Oh, gotcha. Um, so I only moved to Australia in in 2014. Ah. So it's just expat. <laughs> yeah. So so you're you're not you're not fully Australian. No, 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 not even a citizen yet. Oh. Damn it, bureaucrats. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you ever find that uh uh when you're around other people that more accent comes out cuz I have that. There's actually a there's actually a name for the what my wife calls a disorder that I have that embarrasses her all the time where anytime I'm around somebody with any accent like within 2 minutes I start speaking in that accent and they think I'm making fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I don't get that, but the reason is is because I couldn't do an Australian impression outside of good eye. <laughs> That's as much as I got. <laughs> You're right. I, tried, I have a friend who says if you want to learn how to speak it, just stick your fist in your mouth. <laughs> so it kinda it kind of comes across. Okay. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm the I'm the worst. I went one time I went to this uh this these cabins. I was, I was living in Colorado at the time and went out to this like it was a kind of like a dude ranch experience for the weekend. And the, the guy who had all the horses came down and he was, he had a real thick Southern draw in immediately. I'm like, how y'all doing? And, and he did not appreciate it at all. And I couldn't stop doing it. It just kept, it just kept happening. You know what? I have a friend, same thing. And if she, we went to long Island and I'm like, where's, where's that coming from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, all of a sudden, <laughs> it should be called the chameleon effect. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There, I can't. It's re- just you know, it's just wanting to belong. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what it's called, but, but I remember my wife looked it up and she said, "You have this. This is you." You. Do- <laughs> it's, it's I mean, I I I found that since I've been um, working closely with, with Noel, we've been friends for a while. But now, I mean, I do the audio editing also, so Noel's head 
a voice is often in my head. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I, I've uh. started. So now already my accent is all over the show. <laughs> and <laughs> as a South African, Afrikaans speaking South African living in Australia, now I've got every now and then I get this American twang where I don't say orange like I would, but orange. <laughs> where orange did that County. Orange. <laughs> Well, like it's like what Eminem said, four inch, door inch, orange. That's you can still say it in in a proper way. Okay. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of Eminem, um, so I, I see Noel that you are uh, you've you've been in the entertainment industry for a long time, and you were a recording and touring rap artist at one time, and your name was Vital MC. Is that accurate? That's accurate. That's a past life. And if we're talking about how like we start taking, you know, vernacular from like whoever we're around, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> right. No, but um, but yeah, yeah, that was that was definitely the go for for quite a long time in my young years. So um yeah, I kind of miss it. It's just I find it a little bit obnoxious to sort of still chase it at 40. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like like if you haven't got there as a white rapper by yeah. this point, then you're not getting there. You know, well. And a gay one at that. No, but I'll say that um, I still record for myself and I still, you know, do those kinds of things because mm-hmm. music, if you have music in you, it always sure. will be there. It's the business aspect and like trying to get the recognition on the social medias and all that stuff that just don't count anymore. Like I could care less. But that being said, it's always pivoted to the podcast and to filmmaking. So that's, there's still that aspect there. But as far as being a rapper goes, yeah, uh, um, I still feel I'm good, but I know I'm dated as hell because it's like, hey, I'm sorry, cat. Um, <laughs> and I think this is a good thing, but we're like, oh, you sound more like Tupac. And I'm like, to me, that's good. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a good thing. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> but, oh, oh, wait. So you guys, don't, you guys don't vibe off that anymore. That's right. Uh, the generation gap just becomes more apparent and more apparent and more apparent. I still vibe off Tupac if it makes you feel better. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it. That's how I know we're in good company. Right. <laughs> so did you ever, were you ever able to make a, a career out of it and make money rapping? I mean, it sounds like you were touring, you were doing yeah. all right. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, like sort of one of the local royalty, if you will. Um, like not just me, but like a couple of things we had like a bit of a movement and it was sort of like it were coming up, but like I was on a label that wasn't say hip hop based. It was more of like, well, I guess it would call it progressive rock because the band who was running the label was called the Arx Bandits and they sort of like, Went from sort of a ska sort of vibe, mm-hmm. and then it just became progressive, more rocky, oingo boingo-ish, even if you will. But but so they had a, a following. So the so the following in the groups that I was in under that label sort of came that way, and it was not people who were just I'm strictly hip hop or I'm strictly this. It was just sort of people who like music and all sorts of music, and that's sort of what started informing what we were doing. So um, you know, it was it was it was doing that, and then making change but then because of this i you know like my manager at the time had got me a gig in china and that's when i went to china for a couple years and then started actually making some nice money there by just being an american rapper which i guess would never happen these days but um (laughs) okay now it's time to come clean did you just get on stage and talk Yes. Yes, it's all I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they don't speak the language, it's talk fast. Very quickly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then when you put the beat in front, then it gets faster. And I realize that, and I can't slow myself down. <laughs> <laughs> Which with the podcast, you, that, that's why it's good to be in the same room because slow down. You know, like, slow down. Like, a bit of trivia. Slow down. A bit of trivia, like in the early episodes, Sonia would have to slow me down. 
on like on the audio. Uh-huh. <laughs> in, in audio. So I would I, sound more like this. Oh. Reduce the pace. I, I've made <laughs> so if my people earlier this year we crossed over over a thousand episodes between this show and Truth and Justice. Oh. And oh my goodness. And in doing all those and Mike editing me after all that many, he said he's still the worst part of his edits are the last 10 minutes of a long episode of Truth and Justice because he said, I start talking. Yeah. So, because I'm just getting anxious and I want to be done. And so I start talking yeah. faster and he has to break it up and slow it down through editing. So I don't sound like I'm like, okay, anyway, just, yeah. you know, fuck this. Let's just get through it and be done with this real quick and yeah. move on. What are you doing? I'm trying to give you natural pauses. Well, they're not natural. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you were, uh, after, after your, your Vital MC career, uh, you, you, be- Sassoon. Sorry. <laughs> you, be- you became a filmmaker and you actually, you actually won an award or some awards as a filmmaker. Uh, yeah. Um, Sonia and I actually, the first film that I ever did, Sonia directed, uh, I wrote it and, and, you know, we both produced it and that won an award. And then, so from there just, um, kept making little short films and, and done quite well, but, you know, still personally trying to achieve that feature film like real low budget or mm-hmm. first time but continuing you know going with short films and then i'm part of a collective we drop one minute horror films at the top of every month so and that's sort of been helped because of lockdown like sure. having content come out and content creation in that way um but at the at the end of the day it's all it's all towards the same goal you know it's all just towards being creative doing things that actually feel cathartic in one way shape or form and I find in a weird way that true crime is cathartic. It's like, we don't have to commit the crime. We could just read about it. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's definitely having my hands in those pots right now because that's what it's all blended down to and all the experience that's behind me. So, yeah, it's well, life. it's gotta be, it's gotta be with the, the lockdowns that you guys are in. It's got, it's gotta be, like you said, helpful. I know I kind of got into that rut where I wasn't creating um, you know, this, this show was born from truth and justice and we got, you know, th- during our lockdown, the show that, you know, the person we were trying to help died in prison. We couldn't get records. Oh, I couldn't do another case. And so we just started doing interviews just to keep the, sh- the show going. And it was, and I, I loved the, that's why we ended up spinning off because I love doing the interviews, but I definitely found myself, I remember talking to Mike about five months in just saying, God, I, I'm not creating anything. I'm not writing. I'm not doing any, you know, I'm, I'm just talking to people, which is great, but I miss that part. So it's nice that you have that, that outlet still, um, is yeah. all the TV work that you do scripted stuff. Sounds like it's not documentary style. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not the best at the documentary style. I think, um, I actually think Sonya would make a hell of a, a documentary, um, director and writer. I mean, I think it comes across in her script. Oh, you're very welcome. But you know, I think this, <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I do think it comes across in, in like her scripting. So I think there's a bit of a, a gap in between the two, but it's not like a far one that couldn't be bridged. And I think, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't want to like throw you under the bus, Sonia. I think you're, you have a personal story that's quite interesting that would make an interesting documentary. But we've we've discussed that before. You're, you're you know, your family yeah. and stuff. Like that. So well, that makes sense. I was gonna, when you said that you, um, you that you're really into the scripted the stuff and not the unscripted and couldn't do documentary. I was thinking, but your podcast is really a documentarian type podcast and it's very it's very well done. I really enjoyed the episodes I've listened to, but that makes sense that uh because Sonia you are are the director, producer, writer for for the podcast. So and you also come from um from TV and it sounds like you were you guys hooked up was on, on a was it on a, a project together or did you guys work together for a long time doing You could say that. <laughs> we laugh. 
Um, we met because we you you can you take it from here. No, where did we meet? Well, we'll just we'll just say we met at a very famous fruit shop who sells um, phones Technology. and computers and stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, both being expats, um, we got jobs there. And when I transferred from Brisbane to to Sydney, um, I transferred to the store in, in, in Bondi. And one day, and I was new, one day is like, okay, so go stand at the door. And, and Sonia happened to be the person who was at the door who I had to assist. Mm-hmm. We so were we the other people. We had to yeah. say, hi, head on over <laughs> there, head on over there. So, yeah, no. And then we just got to talking and it was like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be a filmmaker and I'm trying to make films. Oh, I want to be a filmmaker. I'm trying to do films. So like, oh, well, maybe we can help each other out. And then, yeah, we just we started just sort of talking from there. And then by after making the first film and then winning there, um, Sonia had had moved from the city and had taken it upon herself because I know that she was always interested in, in true crime and doing a podcast. So she just called me one day. She says, look, I want an American voice. And you're the one I know. So are you happy to do it? It's like, yeah. I also well, I did try a couple of lines myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought I wouldn't listen to me. The accent you know way acting. Let's, and I sound like a muppet. So let's <laughs> I mean, do a Patreon episode where it's you reading the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so no. You would be surprised. Everybody, th- everybody thinks that when they, when you first record your voice for the first time, everybody always listens and is like, that's not what I sound like. I know <laughs> this is, this can't, sure it's gotta be something with the microphone. Yeah. I'm never calling people again. Just take right. the email. <laughs> right. We learn sign language. That's it for me. I'm done. Yeah. Am I, I don't my like the way I sound. Nods I just, or thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. I can separate the artist from the art. So I don't like the way I sound. I just do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. You know, we, you know, a lot of people will say they, they, they like my voice on the podcast, but they're like from when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, I sound nasally and just doesn't sound right. We could pick out every little you, thing. You right? sound amazing. You've got a Will Arnett thing going. Oh, uh, what? I was going to say, like, there's, yeah, I can, I can vibe. You can, you can even do guided meditation with the voice I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe that should be my next career. I'll move into that. <laughs> you know, it's uh, the 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 world's your oyster, <laughs> right? <laughs> so so Sonia, the the idea for the podcast was yours. So how, how how did you come up with the idea? What made you think of you know to go from filmmaking to make a true crime podcast? Oh, it was sort of situational because we moved to the country, so I was away from my contact. So and um, I mean, I'm a mom, and when we moved here, the kids were still a little bit smaller. So it's it's not a very family-friendly environment to go filming till three in the morning and that right. sort of thing. But I again, I was just in that same funk that I needed to create something and I needed something to to be consistent, not just one project that you kill yourself for and then six months, nothing. And um, I was a scriptwriter for a soap opera in South Africa. Even when I moved here, I still wrote scripts for South Africa. So that, that I did for 11 years. So I, I I know about constantly working and I just needed to get back to that. And I really liked true crime. So I was always listening to it. And I painted the house inside and just listening to all these true crime podcasts. <laughs> um, and I, I even applied to one podcast to be a writer. <laughs> and um, they uh, strung me along for a bit and then started ghosting me. Mm-hmm. We will mention no names. Okay. And um, <laughs> no one wants to name drop. <laughs> I, and then, I kind of do, but I won't lie. Out of respect. <laughs> and then um, my husband just said, well, gosh, you've made films. Surely audio can't is much less complicated. Just 
give it a go. And then it was that when I sat with the mic and I uh, hated my life, <laughs> I heard my voice. <laughs> and um, when I left the city, Noel and I always said, but even from the start, from that first day, we showed people away at the door. <laughs> you don't need a phone today. <laughs> go away. We're talking. <laughs> you can't afford it. Go. Um, from that first day that we talked, we actually made a pact that we will help each other in whichever way we can. Well, that's awesome. Because you need a you need a pal. Yeah, that's that's and great. I, I thought, well, Noel is really well suited for this. He knows how to work with a mic with his rapping experience. And so what we did is we we actually do a couple of episodes in a batch. We've even done as many as seven episodes in one. Like a two-day, no. then Noel comes to stay. He's like uncle to my kids almost. <laughs> and then he comes to stay the night and we have a nice meal at the night and we just record, record, record. And we have we started recording literally in my son's bedroom. We went to another study. We've <laughs> we've been everywhere. And now we've, we've ended in, uh, we built a little studio under our stairs. So the Harry Potter room is now our recording studio. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, now, you mentioned that that like your husband said, well, you know, if you can do film, then you know, just audio's got to be simpler. Do you find that it is? Because because I I've always when I'm I'm not a filmmaker, but I you know when I'm writing the podcasts and I'm trying to like set scenes and describe things, a lot of times I'm thinking it'd be so much easier if they could just see this and I didn't have to write and explain exactly what <laughs> is it more difficult or do you find it easier? A hundred percent. That is a good question because I, I, in fact, I made a short film without any dialogue because I really believe in the power of showing a good picture. I think a picture tells a million words, um, but it it had it made me flex my writing muscle quite a bit more. Uh huh. So um, it's just from a production point of view, I suppose the audio is sure. easier because it's literally you sit, you record, and I taught myself how to edit it. So. It, it it was something within my grasp that I could do with the help. I will of say, with with any for any sound engineers or recordists or any any of them listening, your job is very important. And it is difficult. It's a whole new rabbit trail. Hundred percent. Equalizations and all that kind of things. Hundred <laughs> percent. No, and I'm not dissing anyone. I'm saying ours is also not a very. Um, produced podcast if you will it's not a lot of sound effects and everything it's literally null speaking and the soundtrack over so it is it's simplified but i think that's to answer your question i i was in control of how simple i could keep sure. it or not do you do you have any because you still do some film work sounds like do you have any issues like flip-flopping like when you have to go from right because you know I, I have a good a good friend that is a is a tv writer and i remember him telling me he always you know he he will write a scene and then the first thing he does is go back and try to cut out a third of the words from the scene because he's saying too much. Just get it out. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I haven't done film for a while. The, I live vicariously through Noel because, <laughs> to be to be honest, uh, Evidence Locker is a full-time job for me. And I'm, I'm barely coming up for air as it is. Um, so I, I don't have time. But Noel kindly sends me his scripts to read through. And, and he's a very good script writer also. So... Um, yeah, I live vicariously through Noel, and I've I had the pleasure of working on one of his sets as a. I don't ex actually know what my official title was. We call it a fluffer. <laughs> I was just a, that can't be right. Was, that cannot be right. I was the mom. <laughs> Oh uh, no! I got. I just got to give a little bit of a, 
industry. <laughs> I just got to give a little bit of a, of a side story. It was one of my favorite moments on any set because we have a mutual friend who was also a producer on this set. But this particular film turned into sort of a very, I, I called it a productive frat party because uh-huh. we were productive because we were making a film, but the hosts had brought in alcohol and things. And, and one of the producers just partook a little bit more than the rest of us. Um, <laughs> but he didn't finish his, his, his drinks. So one morning woke up and Sonia had gathered all the cans, all the bottles and just put them there together. And they were all this particular gentleman's and they were all three quarters full. <laughs> I just thought that was like the best moment, like on a film set was like, oh man, that is one of those moments that that's like one of my favorites. I will never forget. <laughs> it was this long kitchen counter and I lined them up next to each other. I didn't say a word. See, that's passive aggressive parenting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, what you just described is every time my kids have friends over and going, I get so mad because it'll be pop cans everywhere. It's like they open one, take two sips, set it down, go get another one, open that over and over. That's exactly over what it was. Mm-hmm. What, what keeps you from finishing the cans? Oh, um, conversation. Yeah. He's like, well, I didn't remember which one was mine. I'm like, I think they're all yours. You can have pick, pick one. COVID's a thing now, dad. Okay. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh man! So uh, you, you know when you are you're writing these episodes, I, I was just thinking you were doing like seven at a time. That's a lot of work, and because uh, I think of, I my whole family knows that I hate Thursdays because my you know Truth and Justice is weekly, it's real time, so it's like investigative work, research, right on Thursday, record Friday morning, and time to get it to Mike to edit and get it off to our music, our sound engineer, music guy, and I can't imagine. Just sitting down and just banging out seven scripts at once, I'd lose. But I should. I should take time, the times when we have downtime and write them. But instead, I'm just like, ah, there's a week where I don't have to write anything. Look at this. <laughs> no, no sense getting ahead. I'll just be miserable next week. <laughs> right. I'm going to lean into not having to do anything. <laughs> yeah. But one one thing I noticed is so the and I want to I want to I want to transition into this case we're talking about today because this case is fucking bananas. It's crazy. It's a horror film in itself. Yeah, but the fir- the first thing that I noticed in the before I even knew what your guys' backgrounds were when I was listening to it is there is a there's an art even though you're you're writing what is kind of documentarian and you're telling a story it's still there's like a cinema element to it I guess in the way that it's structured and that you know I'm I'm listening and you start off with one story that is you know three quarters of the way through the timeline does get you hooked and then we snap back to the beginning of it. And then tell the whole story and build back to that point, and then for Act Three, continue on past it. Uh, I just, I mean, I was hooked. I was actually driving. My son had a tennis match uh, this afternoon, and as I was listening, I was driving around the block just in my car, just trying to finish this episode. <laughs> I was like, "Wait, what happened?" I think we both can take that as the big compliment. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thank you, especially coming from you. Gosh, you just finished your tenth season, and to be a hundred percent honest. For a minute, when you said you wanted to talk to us, I thought it was a prank, but I'm really glad that it's not. <laughs> no, not, not at all. <laughs> so which one of you wants to tell us? The, I, normally, I have, I have the guests tell the, the kind of basics of the story, and then we kind of break it down a little bit. But I don't know how to really summarize this case. I mean, the, the, we're talking about the mysterious death of Cindy James that happened in Canada. Uh, and this, this is an epic saga of a, a, a stalking situation, I think, from what it sounds like, from what, at least from the way I've heard it. 
just gone terribly wrong. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever listened to Laura Richards on um, mm. Real Crime Profile. You know, she's in the UK has really pushed for um, legislation for stalking because there's this problem where it's just not enforceable and the police tend to ignore it and they don't do anything about it until someone's dead. And that seems like kind of like what the case is here. This woman, Cindy James, was horribly stalked for seven years. So I'll let whichever one of you wants to, to take the lead, kind of going to give us the give us the insane beats of this case. So it's over to you, Noel. Uh, well, I, I want to say before we go into the beats that with with the stalking stuff, it's like usually one of those hindsight is everything. Like, well, it was always you know like. Well, obviously, look at it now. There was always signs towards this happening, whatever mm-hmm. it is. But in this case, I don't think that exists because it's still a big mystery. Like we don't, you could look at hindsight, but but there's no official, you know, we can't other than suicide. And if you look at like what but turned how? out, how yeah, the hell, I think that's you know? that's the thing. And and she she did lay many complaints. So uh, run us through the story, and then we okay, we, so, we can see um, how it essentially. Um, Oh, you might have to give me a bit here, but um, with Cindy James, so these events took place in, in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, between 1982 and 1988. When she was 38 in 1982, she was divorced and she lived by herself. But before the divorce, she was actually married to a South African-born psychiatrist named Dr. Roy Makepeace, uh, who himself was 18 years older than her when they married, and she was only 19. Uh, but after uh, 16 years, they had split up. They remained close friends afterward. Um, and it was only after the divorce that Cindy lived by herself for the first time in her life, uh, her job, um, she cared for troubled children, um, at a place called Blenheim house. Um, and months after their marriage ended is when Cindy started to receive threatening phone calls. Um, sometimes they were, you know, verbally abusive or, or, or scary sort of like messages, um, like out of a horror movie. Um, mm-hmm. and sometimes it was just somebody breathing down the line, just, you know, to just make her uncomfortable or to scare her. Um, but by October 1982, um, she had reported over 100 incidents to the police. Um, and that continued on for, for seven years. And, and some of these strange incidents that she would report, like uh, one time there was a pillow on her bed and it was slashed, but there was like no signs of entry. Um, another time someone broke into her house, hit her over the head. Um, she said she felt a needle in her arm before she lost consciousness. And when she woke up, there were a lot of superficial stab wounds all over her body. And um, there was a note with like cutout letters from a magazine, you know, like a ransom note or something like mm-hmm. uh, it. And it said, you're dead, bitch. Um, and, and even though there were needle marks, <laughs> you're dead. Well, I think I've heard some cursing. Um, <laughs> yeah, bitch is fine. No, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then as, as it pertains to the case, that's the true, the true words. Right. Um, but. You know, even though there were needle marks on her arm, um, the blood test result, uh, the results showed that there were no traces of drugs in her system at all. Another time she found a dead cat in her garden with another note and it said, you're next. And then she also found another dead cat later. Her dog, Heidi, was tortured. Um, thankfully, it survived. But Heidi's leash was found uh, was found as the murder uh, weapon for the for the cats. Um, she took Heidi for walks. Uh, one time she took Heidi for a walk and saw a green van pull up. Uh, a woman asked for directions. And the next thing she recalled, Cindy, uh, she recalled that she was on a stranger's porch and three hours had just magically passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, there were needle marks on her arms, but no traces of drugs. So these are some of the strange incidents out of many. Um, but out of all this, there were three suspects that came to light. 
The first one being her ex-husband, um, Roy Makepeace. There was an incident where police found him in the street behind her house with two firearms. And he said that he was there to protect her because he claimed that she looked after the child of someone who was part of an organized crime family and that that family disliked her. Um, interestingly enough, Cindy had claimed that she had witnessed Roy killing and dismembering a young couple when they were on a yacht trip uh, near Thormanby Island in 1981. Um, it was never proven, but mm-hmm. she still claimed it. Um, the second was um, a gentleman by the name of Pat McBride. He was an officer who was uh, who responded to some of her uh, initial calls as they met because of the stalking. But no harassment occurred when police kept the surveillance. So that made um, police believe that the stalker had inside knowledge and about her whereabouts and all those sorts of things. Um, but the third one, and the one that gets me personally, and Sonia knows this because we, we've gotten into random conversations about it. The third suspect was Cindy herself, because police felt that she was withholding information. Um, she admitted that she recognized one of her attackers, but refused to identify him uh, because he threatened to harm her family if she did. But after a house fire in her basement, she was seen walking her dog at 3 a.m. in the morning. Police thought she was outside because she was the one um, who started the fire. Mm-hmm. But Cindy believed her stalker didn't want her dead and, again, just wanted to scare her like all the calls and things that were made to her initially. And she also thought that there was more than one person, like a main tormentor who had assistance. But as, as, as you can guess, she became withdrawn and she spent a lot of time at St. Paul's Hospital. A psychiatrist and a psychologist agreed that the incidents were the result of psychotic breaks. But ultimately, after all the said and done, she was found hogtied and murdered, and her death was ruled to be a suicide. She had suicidal thoughts in the years leading up to her death, And during her time in the hospital, she even wrote a note that said, um, quote, I still feel suicide is my best option in an unbearable situation. And as soon as I get out of here, I will carry out my plan, unquote. But on on the day of her death, she was reported to be upbeat and positive. She had her hair done, um, bought some groceries and cashed her paycheck. And obviously that doesn't seem like like the actions of somebody who's ready to commit suicide on any given day. But anyways, two weeks later, her body was found in the yard of an abandoned house. Um, about over a mile from where she had left her car. She suffered a brutal beating. Her hands and legs were tied behind her neck and she was fully dressed, but she had no shoes on. Her feet were clean, which means she couldn't have walked to the location of her death. And, you know, like many times before, a black nylon stocking was tied around her neck, which is just, yeah, that's weird. And she, she, she had OD'd on morphine and other drugs, but the morphine was administered intravenously. But the thing is, like, like we were saying before we began this, um, if she had done that to herself, you know, she would have not been able to tie herself up in that way. You know, hogtied his right. ankles to, to wrists and things like that. So, yeah, so that's pretty much the beat points. And it's just one of those things like, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll preface it by saying there's a lot of films now that, that sort of play into the supernatural, but then you find out it was more about mental illness or a metaphor for mental illness. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how I observe this case. It's it to me, Cindy James is the strongest suspect, but with a close second to her, her husband, um, her ex-husband. And we can get into this, but but yeah, I think that, that this particular case is I'm surprised it's not profiled more than it is because it's just so weird and it's so intriguing of all the things that happened. So you lean towards that you you think that most likely that the police were right and that she actually completed suicide and it was her all along making up the making up the stalker yeah i mean it's the only thing that makes the most sense to me that it 
could be herself. But when I say a close second to her, her husband, um, and I, and, you know, Sonia can go into this a little bit more too, but because he was a psychiatrist and because he was older than her, I can't, you know, assume. Is it because he's South African? No. It's exactly, <laughs> you know what you guys are like. No. Yeah. <laughs> like the psyche of the South Af- of the sicko South African. <laughs> so in order to st- understand how screwed up they are, let's talk to one themselves. No, um, <laughs> no I was just thinking because we can't speculate how Roy was in his head, but he could have gaslighted her. And, and maybe, you know, it seems like she already had a mental illness. And for somebody who's a psychiatrist, if he wanted to do those sorts of things, he probably could have done it very smoothly, you know, and, and played into, into like her, her manias and things like that. So it might've been a two, twofer, like. Yeah, that's the theory I'm, I'm leaning towards. And I think, I think he had the ability to drive her to the brink yeah. of, of doing something to herself. Again, it's it's not been proven, so this is speculation. But he he had access to her. He he had access to her house, even though they split up. They were still over at each other's homes a lot. When she went away to her brother in Indonesia for an extended holiday, nothing happened mm-hmm. because Roy wasn't there. <laughs> okay. So then you have to think, you know, if it is mental illness, th- these things don't take a holiday. You take mental illness with you. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, and, and just the, you know, how she was found, you know, they find her car, there's blood in the car, all the things that you laid out, Noel, where she's, she's hogtied, she's OD, you know, there, there's a lot of things, but, but, you know, I, I was wondering when I'm listening to a couple things, one, you know, she kept getting these threatening phone calls, but when she moved, she got a new phone number and only gave her phone number to the people closest to her. Presumably Roy would be one of those people. Yes. She was continuing to get phone calls, even with new phone numbers. Uh, but the thing that got me is that she kept calling the police and kept saying that she knew who did it, but wouldn't tell them who did it. And then you have to wonder, well, then what was the point of calling the police? If you, you know, if, if you know who did it and the, and you're mm-hmm. not going to tell them, then why call them? What, what, what's the end game there? It's a, it's super perplexing the, the entire thing. And it's insane. Like, I mean, we're talking seven year, if there were, if she was legitimately being stalked and then murdered. That's seven years. And and how many, what, three, four different occasions there were um, actual violent encounters where she was, you know, someone broke into her house or their lit her basement on fire or, you know, just one thing after another. And still nothing happened until she ended up dead. You know, and if she was injected with, say, morphine and, and drugs like that, obviously being a psychiatrist, maybe you could have had access to thing, things of that nature. I, I think, yeah, it sounds like it was... Like it was literally um, a twofer where it's almost like it was a social experiment if we assume that make peace was the guy. Uh-huh. And, and I don't know, I can't, did, did we ever touch on um, the reason they got divorced, Sonia? Was there, was there like any so, sort of reports of? So the family all said it was a bit of a surprise when they got divorced because it seemed fine. And then the next thing they just split up. But um, it was, it, if you look at the timeline, it was about a couple of months after sh- that um, murder she claimed to have witnessed, that the okay. marriage that Roy made, that Roy had done. That yes. she said that she said that her ex husband Roy had, had massacred this these people. Yeah. Did he ever tell police or through through any of this that 
that that she had psychological issues that he thought that it could be her because he it seems like he would know better than anyone he's been with her since she was a teenager yeah so he played that card quite a bit but um ultimately it was also i mean independent people also said that it, those were psychotic breaks mm-hmm. so you almost have to wonder if it was a combination of the two and that's why i'm saying if you have that person that knows your weaknesses and know you you maybe have an inclination to to stress over something in particular your closest being i mean my husband could probably drive me nuts too <laughs> just knowing to right. press the right buttons and and push you to the brink and then but then you sort of as noel says it's almost like a social experiment how far can i push this person until they start believing that they're doing it to themselves it's just very odd everything is odd you don't right. know and the that's why i'm thinking cool. it might be a combination of the two because if if it's just a tormentor going going and it, it, i mean we've all seen the films that someone's thinking is it am i losing my mind or is this actually happening to me and to that's me, the scary bit it, it no it does and um i'm i'm very fascinated by the case but the thing is if we say let's say Roy engineered the whole thing and he killed these people that, that Cindy claims um, he's, he's choking the cats. He's torturing the dog at the end of the day, when Cindy is found hogtied, how is that a suicide? Like, okay. So she, maybe she overdosed and then somebody came along and hogtied her. I mean, the black, the black nylon stocking, maybe that could have been a fetish that he had. I mean, who, who knows? There's, there's so many weird elements to it. And the reason that I think like Sid, Cindy had, uh, an element of doing this to herself. I do think that maybe it was engineered. So it's it's almost supernatural, but obviously there's a truth underneath what causes these these occurrences. And and at the end of the day, it could have just been a very toxic relationship, but she might have not known how toxic it was. Maybe she was like unaware of exactly what it was because she she just seemed to have a mental illness um, that could have been made worse. I mean, did they ever find anything like, let's say... I don't want to go into like uh, MK Ultra stuff, but I don't know. Like she could have been susceptible. Like he could have made her her, you know, if he's gaslighting or made her think certain things about herself. And then yeah, because hitting I home mean, by, by the actions. Let's also just appreciate that now in 2021, we've come a really far away in appreciating what mental illness is. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, it was there was still a big stigma surrounding it. So to actually go to a hospital and be treated for it. It was a really big deal. Where now, I mean, we're all aware you need to do certain things to prevent yourself from from having a nervous breakdown or whatever if you're prone to anxiety and that sort of things. It's it's more open. People talk about it more, and there's more information about it. In the 80s, and I'm sure, and I mean, Bob, you made a good point. Roy was there since she was 19. Mm-hmm. If anyone, and he was a psychiatrist, so if anyone knew if she had a mental illness, not even to put a label on it. It would be him. He could have been an architect of more, a further, further mania. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it really does sound like a horror movie, and I, I can see both argue. There's, there's certainly an argument there for mental illness. It's hard to understand how the, how you know, how the suicide ends up hogtied and everything else. But then, you know, I, I, was, I think that she has, she's, she's given these indications throughout her life, throughout all these seven years, that she had some severe mental illness. But what if that's all a symptom of what was happening to her? And if you think like, like in this, in this, in this scripted horror movie, right? If the bad guy is 
truly an evil psychiatrist, then that, you know, and this is part of his master plan. And if he's truly a psychopath that butchers people or massacres people, as she says, she saw at one point, like I, I could see it, it's kind of like if he is a psychopathic evil psychiatrist, then I could totally see him making her crazy through this process and killing her and making it look like it was her. Or if he's just some normal dude that was trying to help, then then she probably just had severe mental illness. And it's really hard to, to differentiate which one is more likely. It, it seems like... Also, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Just um, quick. Also, I mean, if, if he had been doing this and getting away with it for seven years, why would he then... If he, if he could just have killed her with the morphine, why hogtie her? He could right. have made it appear to be a suicide. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he could have made it just not tie her up and put a needle in her hand because she was a trained nurse. She would have known how to inject herself. Uh, she had um, perhaps access to medicine through friends or something. I don't know. I don't think that that's easy to come by, morphine. I'm not saying that someone snuck her morphine, but uh, I, I I don't know the, the street <laughs> how to get <laughs> morphine. Um, dare, but, um, I say, dare I say that even like if, if we're going with Roy, that again, I, I bring it up. It could be some sort of weird fetish thing that he has. Mm-hmm. He yeah. could be obsessed with Cindy, which is why, I mean, he was with her from 19. So he could be obsessed with this girl to, and to, to break up is to still exert some sort of control over her or some like, you're still mine type yeah. of thing, which is why the black nylon stocking, because yeah. that, that's, that's a weird thing. That's the only thing that my brain can make that leap toward is just some sort of weird fetish yeah. towards the killer. But if it was Roy, it's like the killer's in the house, the call's coming from in the house. He was yeah. always there. Um, and that's the thing. Like, it seems the law believes him because why would they take her? Oh, he murdered and dismembered a family or whatever. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, no, she's just crazy. <laughs> so it's, it's easier. Um, it's easier to dismiss. But as, as, time, I mean, yeah. shouldn't this be what just, I don't know, again, landing at the suicide. How, how could police rule it a suicide? Surely it should be a, a homicide or unsolved undeclared or what's the correct term even in, if you go to canada if it's not if you don't have a reason for the death unknown yeah that yeah they, unknown they seem like they, but they I mean, the cause, omit, omit the no, hog think, time you know no well yeah. the cause was drug overdose but it's um who inflicted it right well, the case is is absolutely fascinating. It's an M Night Shyamalan Shyamalan movie in the <laughs> in the making. Uh, or Noel Vincent. Yeah, the, yeah. I'll take it. And the podcast is full of interesting and 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 very well written stories, just like this one. Their names are Noel and Sonia. The podcast is called The Evidence Locker. Check it out. I'm sure once you do, you're going to be binging for weeks and weeks and weeks. Thank you both of you for joining me. It's been a really interesting conversation and and honestly really loving the show. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Bob, and so much respect for the work you do and we're really honored to have been talking to you today. Thank you for reaching out. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. 
Our website, truecrimebinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of createdintandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.